Fantasy-animation.org is a website with a difference. It is not-for-profit and it's run entirely by academics and professional animators. And this means that whether you are reading our latest blog or accessing our latest podcast, thanks for downloading by the way, you can be sure that you are getting the most up-to-date and informed commentary on the colliding worlds of fantasy storytelling and the medium of animation. Whether you are a budding animator yourself, a student of fantasy or animation, or just someone who wants to learn more about the history and theory behind these overlapping media, mediums and genres, why not find out more at fantasy-animation.org or subscribe to our various social media threads on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at Reddit, at fananimresearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M, research. While you're at it, subscribe to the podcast, give us a star rating and better yet, a quick written review as well. It all helps to make the visibility of our project even stronger and attract more like-minded people like yourself to our growing network of fans. For now, do enjoy the show. Hi listeners and welcome to the latest episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast with me, Chris Holiday, And me, Alex Sargent. So we're back in the world, Alex, of uh, animated documentary looking at the very recent uh, 2021 Danish adult animated documentary, Flea. So highly successful, I think has got a lot of um, kind of traction, uh, directed by Jonas Poe Rasmussen um, that kind of engages with a number of issues that would... Uh, make it, I guess, conducive to an animated documentary format. So I've got a few things to say around kind of um, dramatic reconstruction, the use of live action footage in animated documentaries, which I've always found sort of really striking. Why do animated documentaries feel the need mm. to use live action footage? Um, and then I was doing a bit of reading around the influence of Edward Hopper on some of its um, visual designs. So yeah, a few little things around um, kind of histories of animated yeah. documentary, so which we will tease with our guest, but beforehand, fantasy. Yeah, yeah these episodes... I often have a um, sort of an anxiety around these episodes because I think, oh God, a documentary. What am I going to do as the guy that goes on about goblins and like wizards and stuff today? But actually, like in the case of our previous episode where we did an animated documentary, we've got, I've got, I've got, I think I've got a lot to say about fantasy this time. I've got a lot to say about the role of, 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 or the way the film frames um, ideas of the fantastical, ideas of memory, ideas mm-hmm. of this kind of subjectivity of experience. Uh, the relationship between the imagination and emotion and trauma and how animation is used to kind of evoke these things. So actually, I'm, I'm all right, Chris. I've got some stuff to say this week. Okay, well, if if you didn't have anything yeah, to yeah, say, yeah. and I was... But then that would be the first time in yeah, the history yeah. of the podcast. Or the world. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and if I hadn't had anything to say, it would just be our guest, so our expert. And that would be good enough. That would be very... Um, yeah, as you, I think you've used the term ironclad to describe experts that we've done a few episodes with. So I would definitely say that uh, our special guest, Christina Formenti, um, is an ironclad expert on the animated documentary. So Christina um, is assistant professor in film studies at the University of Udine, where she is conducting the research project for an environmentally sustainable documentary production, distribution, representation. She's author of a number of um, pieces on the mockumentary, as well as a recent book, The Classical Animated Documentary and Its Contemporary Evolution, which was published by Bloomsbury this year. So 
hot off the press, if you will. Um, as I said, you know, Christina has published widely in a number of um, uh, fields, collections, journal articles. She's also, she does a lot of work within animation studies as well, which I think is, is kind of really important to flag. Co-editor of the journal Animation Studies, managing editor of Animation Studies 2.0, which is the... Um, Society for Animation Studies blog, serves on the board of the Society for Animation Studies and is also co-chair of its documentary SIG. So it's very much in between, very much animation, very much documentary, perfect guest. So Christina, thank you finally for coming on the podcast. It's great to have you. Thanks to you two for inviting me. It's great to be here. And it's nice to return to the world of animated documentary. And it's also nice to have, as I said, a, a, an expert on, on animated documentaries to kind of help us think through some of the, yeah, I guess some of the representational nuts and bolts of the film. Um, so, yeah, Flea, where does it fit? Or, or what is interesting to you, perhaps, is a better question about Flea as an animated documentary, given that you've written widely in the field. Why is, why is Flea an interesting kind of, you know, contemporary example of this, of this phenomenon? Flea is an animated documentary that has created uh, again some attention around uh, the yeah. form uh, and this has been uh, important in general I think both for the scholarship but also for documentary filmmakers that like to use animation. Yeah. Uh, it's not something that I talk about in my book because it's so recent yeah. uh, but um, it is uh, um, a peculiar example in the sense that it has received plenty of Oscar nominations, yeah. but still it's not so new. Uh, it follows models uh, that are part of uh, the animated documentary as we already know, um, and it, it doesn't innovate uh, in, in many right. ways. It, it, it resonates in terms of topics uh, because it speaks to a lot of contemporary topics and, and things that are um, at the attention of the public uh, in this moment. But but in terms of the way it is created and the, the structure, the development of the narrative, it's not so innovative. Okay. That's an interesting place yeah. to start, I think, because <laughs> when I was watching it, I I was torn between two reactions. I, I One reaction I felt I was supposed to be having, and then the reaction I was actually having. So the reaction I was actually having was it was very reminiscent of the, you know, the, the, the elephant in the room waltz with Bashir, uh, which we'll try not to, to say. It's like, I feel like, you know, when we do episodes comparing things to Disney, we try to not use the word Disney very much. It's so best, let's let's yeah. only use it a couple of times. But it did feel extremely reminiscent of waltz with Bashir. And I, and I felt a certain... Um, generic quality to the to the to the film as a result of that, and yet the reaction I I also felt I was supposed to be having, and I reaction I do want to give credence to is that yeah okay there are some there are some similarities, but one it's also an incredibly different story. Mm -hmm. um, it's a story about you know incredibly different set of circumstances. Yes, there are traumatic elements of both stories, but they're incredibly different. Different cultures, different nationalities, different uh, histories being told. So you know one should respect that okay there's a huge difference going on and also why can't there be two documentaries that are animated about trauma before we call one of them generic you know it feels like it feels like god that was a short shelf life where we there was one and now apparently there's not allowed to be another one like it you know so i don't know where do you sit with the film as in it, do you given that you're much more versed in the history of animated documentary than i am um is 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 it is it following patterns just from that movie because that's such a smash hit success, or are there just sort of broader tropes of the animated documentary that are worth unpacking that are on on display? 
No, uh, it's following a trend that is broader. I mean, everybody has focused on Waltz with Bashir, and there has been a lot of writing on this film. Uh, and <laughs> yeah, and we, and we all love it, and it's not, you know, it's definitely not an elephant in the room, an awkward <laughs> animated elephant in the room. Um, sorry, Diego. But it, it has taken away the attention from the, bro from the broader form. Uh, it, paradoxically, right, right. In, in the book that I wrote that you were mentioning, I highlight how there have been, like, 25 essays on Waltz with Bashir, uh, just on the film, but there are not as many on the form uh, uh, more generally. Uh, so um, it has brought away a bit the attention from what's the general trend. And there are a lot of animated documentaries about trauma mm -hmm. in the contemporaneity, trauma and sexuality, which is uh, another big, big theme of uh, Flea, for instance. Um, so yeah, uh, Wolfsburg Bashir clearly has become a reference point and is important uh, because it has helped draw the attention towards the contemporary animated documentary, uh, but it's not uh, the only one and it's not necessarily the reference point uh, plus the animated documentary it's not something that is just contemporary it's something that has a long history that dates back uh, to the 1910s um, and you can see a series of elements from that uh, historical production that are still present today. Uh, for instance, uh, the dramatization through an animated actor uh, who r tells you, in this case, a story that is a personal story, uh, but he represents a group of people that lived a similar story. The film focuses on, on the story of Armin, but what happened to Armin happened to plenty of other uh, people. Um, so it, it offers an example on something that uh, is close to the attention and the interest of a specific community um, through telling a single exemplary story, but it's a story that represents much more than uh, than simply the vicissitude of that individual. Mm -hmm. So I, I mean, I'd love to know before we get into into Flea and its sort of narrative of of. Um, migration and, as you say, questions of, of um, gender and sexuality and, and Jean-Claude Van Damme, I'm sure we'll talk about at some at some point, and, and the style of the film. Um, I was just wondering if we could do a, a sort of, I guess, a, a refresher, a whistle-stop um, tour. I, I came to the, the British Film Institute to, to hear you talk at the launch of your book where you sort of gave a, a rundown of the shape of animated documentary. And actually, I'm also interested in, in that, where are we now, four... So, um, uh, Walter Bashir was 2008, so we're 14 years on from that. So I'd be interested to know kind of uh, some beats, a, a whistle-stop tour of the animated documentary and, and, and what the animated documentary is. Does it have a template? You talked about it as a form. So we can identify basically three eras in yes. the history of the animated documentary. Uh, the first one is what I term the early era, even if it doesn't correspond to the early era of cinema uh, that goes from the 19, 1909, actually, um, and up to the 1940s uh, okay. when the Second World War uh, started. In that period, there were some examples of works that use some of the characteristics that have then become peculiar of the animated documentary yeah. as a form, uh, but that still did not use them all in the same way. Uh, and then starting for 1940 instead, there was uh, um, recognition also among producers that start creating works that they 
termed as animated documentaries that they submitted, for instance, in the short documentary uh, category for an Oscar. Uh, so they viewed these animation works uh, as an example of uh, a documentary, yeah. so to speak. So it's an industry label at this point. Yeah, an right. industry label. And uh, it was also recognized, for instance, by the press, at the animated documentary or cartoon documentary, as it used to be called. Right, right as a form uh, existing and the work created works created had a series of uh, characteristics that were all uh, the same obviously they touched uh, a number of topics uh, from i don't know how to uh, go to a doctor and uh, be screened for for cancer yeah. uh, to scientific uh, issues uh, like the um, evolution of uh, planets uh, um, or sexuality for instance a mystery menstruation yeah. or the, the history of uh, transportation in Canada and, and you can find this work throughout the world there are examples that are transnational um, and then uh, starting with 1986 uh, uh, even though there were a few examples before that prepared the terrain uh, we start to see an attention towards the subjective so prior during the what I call the classical era um, they are structured with a voice of God narration um, and somebody that instructs the viewer around that set uh, topic uh, present you a series of facts through the exemplar story of a character that however does not correspond to somebody that is existing in reality but it's just mm. representative of a group of people and uh, instead with the contemporary era uh, you start having stories of people that exist in real life that are nonetheless exemplary of a category of people and there is a lot of attention on subjectivity memory um, but there are for instance topics like we said before like sexuality that mm. you can see in both periods and you can really notice how there is an element of continuity between these two periods although there are these changes in approach that reflect a bit uh, the changes in approach uh, that the documentary itself went through yeah. because it there, there was an always greater attention towards the subjective also within the documentary film, um, so to speak, because I don't actually um, theorize animated documentaries as documentaries. Uh, but it's their own thing. Yeah, as yeah. something different, as an um, animation's form of docudrama. Uh, right, right. Because they mix uh, a bit elements of fiction with uh, elements of non-fiction. They talk about things that are real. Uh, so in terms of the subject, they are yeah. documentaries. But the way in which they present it uh, follows a lot the patterns in which uh, um, it's presented in fiction. So yeah. um, I have identified two typologies of modes of representation for animation. And um, one I called the sober animation which is uh, um, characterized by a schematic and diagrammatic uh, um, graphic language um, it has uh, plain backgrounds uh, bidimensional is that the one that is used in films like Flea uh, is what I uh, refer to as the fabled animation. Uh, so the use of animated actors that reenact uh, events uh, that uh, um, actually happened uh, and also the use of all, what uh, Paul Wells calls animation's magical devices, yeah. uh, metamorphosis, metaphors, uh, similitudes. Uh, so yeah. uh, there is... Uh, 
the fic animation's fictional language and, and, and mode of representation that is used in these works. So I wouldn't compare them to uh, live action documentaries per se, but to live actions uh, um, yeah. docudramas, yeah. although yeah, yeah, presenting yeah. things that, that's I, different. I think this is really fascinating because it's sort of, it, what it means is, is that rather than, as you say, try and fit the animated documentary into a category that was sort of generated for and using live action cinema, to talk about the animated documentary, one, as its own thing, but also as its own thing that is connected to the historical traditions, representational traditions, medium specificity, the fictional language of animation, exactly as you're, as you're saying. Yeah, well, it sounds like we're, so it's a trajectory between animation being used to offer some sort of objective analysis or pertains to be objective mm -hmm. analysis so it's visualizing i mean this still happens right i mean another question i might ask for you is films that identify as animated documentaries and films that use animation that aren't necessarily flagged up because there are a lot of documentaries that use animation right that aren't yes. necessarily sold or thought about as animated documentaries but there might be less animation and they're often used to visualize things we were we had a blog post didn't we on the website about kind of the visualizations of covid over the, the pandemic mm -hmm. and um and yeah. how that's that's all animation you know but it's but it's not you know it's not got that self-declared you know medium um specificity to it so there's one tangent we could go down but i'm interested in this shift from the objective to the to the pr privileging of the subjective and using animation to tell stories about i guess you know subjective truths i feel like that's a more charged term now than than it perhaps would 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 have been a few years ago um i guess the probably answer is a bit of both but is that an, do you think that's an ontological or a cultural issue is that because animation has certain qualities that make it better at telling stories about human subjectivity rather than stories about objective realism mm. or is it you know something innate within the medium or is it because the way we use animation in the mainstream the way it's associated with fantasy and the way it's associated with fables and these sort of things means that the audiences are more comfortable with that use of animation even within the documentary as I say the answer is probably a bit of both but if you could say a few more words that, <laughs> yeah. no I think that animation allows you to re represent and portray things that a live action camera cannot uh, because a live action camera to date maybe in the future it will be able to do so but to date it's, it's not able to go into your mind and, and see what you are thinking what your memories are and so uh, through animation instead uh, since it's malleable it, it allows you to create uh, um, something of which you don't have you know the photographic image or the possibility to go into the head of some of somebody and and, and see what they are thinking uh, so yeah animation i think it's um, the perfect medium to tell this kind of subjective aspects and probably that is one of the reasons why you have also a lot of uh, animated segments within live action documentaries but another reason in that case uh, is also that of uh, attracting a greater audience because animation is, you know, more popular, so to speak, mm. and that creates a, a greater interest probably in, uh, in the audience rather than going to see a boring uh, documentary that just presents you straight facts. Uh, the, the, anima the animation um, enriches it uh, somehow and makes it more visually appealing for, for the viewer. 
So that's probably why the the use of animated segments has grown within the documentary also. Mm. Well, that kind of brings, I suppose, that brings us to, to Flea because I was thinking about the first title card of the film in relation to what you're saying. This is a true story, it says, and mm-hmm. and we'll, we'll talk about the plot shortly. But I was thinking then that in the spirit of medium specificity, does this mean that there is a requirement of animated documentaries to... Okay, so it's, Flea is an adult animated documentary that says at the start this is a true story. D- does this mean there is now a requirement or or is there a requirement for animated documentaries to to kind of make use of the animation to sort of almost justify why it couldn't be done in this other medium, live, live action? The animated documentaries, even though they're bound to more realist ideas of authenticity and truth, actually have to deviate in order to, to kind of remind us or have moments where it kind of goes, this is the animation bit of it, or these are the bits that remind us of what animation can do. It's, it's kind of fictionality. Is there a kind of requirement or a pressure from what you know of animated documentaries to, to have to announce its animatedness because otherwise you go, well, it could just be live action, couldn't it? Yeah, uh, I think that the use of the title card, This is a True Story, is because uh, they have to flag the fact that you as viewer are used to associate the idea of animation to the idea of fiction. And instead, it's not the case, which is the same reason uh, for which you have uh, a lot of live action footage, historical live action footage, to remind you that what you are watching is something that is connected uh, to the real, to the factual world, uh, rather than to an imaginary world. Uh, But these are also characteristics that the docudrama has. In that case, uh, are used live action actors uh, to reenact facts that have happened. And they always have a title card that underlines that that is a true story. Uh, And also, in in that case, they also need to have a title card that says that however events were dramatized. Mm -hmm. While in this case, with animation, that is not necessary because you as a viewer, already know that a dramatization had to happen because... It's drawn. It's drawn. Or or it's created with the computer, so it's not the image from uh, from the world, from a pro-filmic world that is used, but it's something Mm -hmm. that had to be created. So the dramatization is ontological, not narrative. Or it could be narrative. It could be narrative, But it's... The the, the animation is is doing the work of dramatization or that, that... the animation yeah. is the dramatization, yeah, irregardless absolutely. of whether or not the the events occurred in that order, in that mm. configuration. The ontology of animation does the work of that sort of reenactment. Yeah. And, and it just yeah. makes because I've, I've noticed that right at the start, the first images are the, some of the most drawn. If that's a yeah, I'd love to talk about all yeah. the images. Yeah. It does recur to come back to that kind of. St- I mean, we talked about that. The, we can talk about the elusive live action. There's loads of different types of animation in this story and it starts with the most kind of yeah drawn and to me you know fantasy theorist in the room goes okay so that's a declaration of the kind of storytelling we're doing here because you know the the realist fantastical distinction is is largely one of how you how how you're being asked to receive it right it's all manipulation like a camera is a manipulation uh, you know even recording a pro filmic event that's actually happening requires you to to, to section it off into a frame and choose what to film and what not to film. And the event itself is often changed as a result of the process of it being. So actually, you know, all all of this live action animation distinction seems to be, well, one of the things it seems to be is, is the same kind of rhetorical distinction between a fiction of realism where you go, I'm using my words to 
ask you to be persuaded of the the reality of this situation and I'm using my words to declare the fictionality of this situation. And to me, that is a declaration of, it's odd, isn't it? Based on a true story and then this declaration of kind of, you know, pictorial fictionality on the screen. Everything you are about to see is manipulated and drawn and constructed by people. But then I guess that's where the subjective or the kind of, you know, what's the, the thumbprint or the indexical quality of it comes in is that this is drawn by a person and therefore it's the person that that has the reality that yeah. we're trying to express. It is also, I think, very interesting the fact that there are a series of shots in which uh, a slate is put in front of the protagonist and in it's not something that normally happens in animated documentaries, uh. but is there, I think, somehow to remind you that it's something that was created for the camera in, in, a, in a farther way than, than just the fact that it's animated. I found that that kind of shots uh, quite interesting because they are useless, so to speak, in a certain way. They could have been cut, um, yeah. but uh, instead there is an insistence and it's more than one time that you get that shot um, to so somehow remind you that uh, it, it's made up, it's created for the camera and it's a true story, but it's something that is presented, it's manipulated in a certain sense, it's dramatized in uh. a certain sense for the camera. And there are cuts, there are decisions that are made, so it's not reality per se recorded as it was happening, but it's something that is enacted for the camera. Yeah, yeah. We're talking about all the, you're talking about all those shots where like you get like the clapperboard and you yeah. get like yeah the the cell. Was, was there any rotoscoping in this movie at all? Or is that all just an animated construction? Of, no, of... I think it's. I mean, I'm, I I don't know, but I feel like the the rotoscoping and even rotoshop are quite expensive tools and ways of approaching. I think this, like Waltz with Bashir, would probably have been used some sort of Adobe cut out that kind of slippery quality to some of right. the, I mean, I can see Christina looking up. I guess while I, while, while she's doing uh, the uh, research for us, um, <laughs> I will, um, yes, the, so I don't know about the opening sequence, this kind of instrumental music, and then we go into a kind of aesthetic that is, that is loose, that is mark making. You can kind of see the etching. It reminded me of a couple of, um, the, uh, was it Princess Kagua, the sort of the etching, yeah. the line drawing style. Um, and it struck me that that is at that and at other moments where the style slightly slips. So we have these shifts in style where um, there are, yeah, the kind of instances where I think it's when the f scenes of migration and trauma and, and, and enforced movement are often done in that kind of that kind of style because the whole film is about this kind of well it's about Amin but it's about his his own history his own move from Afghanistan to, to Denmark and and the mysterious nature of his history that the filmmaker who plays well the filmmaker is the interviewer plays in the film um but the 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 nightmarish impressionistic images that punctuate the film are offset against some scenes where the images are really crisp and polished and and then as well, you have these live action sequences oh. as well. So um, I just wondered, well, actually, before we go there, how was the, do we know how the film was? Uh, yeah, uh, the Perfect. film wasn't rotoscoped, uh, but they tried to keep the image as close as possible to the identity of Armin, although the use of animation was functional to mask it up and yeah. to protect his identity. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I did some reading around that. The, according to the director, it was made using shotgun software and influenced by Edward Hopper's style um, paintings, but I would say only at certain moments because of the style yeah. kind of continually shifts. 
So my question then for, for Christina is kind of back to this issue of live action. Why do animated documentaries tend to use live action footage and are they making a claim? Because even, and we rem- I remember this from the Waltz of the Sheer episode. That I think, think that all, if we say Waltz with the Sheer one more time, then the QI klaxon. Uh, yeah, I, I'm glad to leave. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so let's try and do it. But yes, you're right. We did okay. talk about this in relation to the that final stuff. shot of um, the yeah, film that yeah. will not be named. Yeah, cool. yeah. the, the um, has live action footage, and so is is Flea in, in moving between, but it's. I was going to say in moving between live action footage and different animated styles, the film is making a point. Or is the film, do you think, making a point around which is more fictional, less fictional? They're all as fictional as each other. My my question with the little asterisk on top of that is, but it's obviously very specific live action footage. It's often quite traumatic, kind of news bulletin style, found footagey, what's the, uh, picture it's, postcard yeah. documentary footage. Mm-hmm. So, it's archival, it's yeah. Yeah. landscapes, yes. it's often settings, it's often, yeah. So what do you, yeah, well, kind of what do you make of, of uh, from your survey of animated documentaries, it seems live action footage is oft, or often, frequently, sometimes used. Why Why does that, why does that happen? In the, and in the case of Flea, is it, are, are we trying to suggest that everything is as true and as fictional as each and each other, uh, other and, and because I have a, a, a follow-up question which might come out of your answer. <laughs> uh, it is a way of connecting the film to a profilmic uh, to underline uh, that what is being presented is something that is real, so to remind it uh, to historical. the viewer. Yeah, it's okay. historical. Yeah. In this case, I think uh, um, there is also the desire to connect it to specific events and to underline those events because uh, um, you have the animation around the story of Armin and then you have historical events that are highlighted through the use of live action. Uh, Live action can be used in animated documentaries. In fact, there are a lot of debates on how much uh, live Mm -hmm. action can you have uh, in order to consider a film an animated documentary. Um, And there there have been uh, scholars that have said it must be at least 50% animated. Others like uh, Annabelle Honest-Rowe that said, no, it we don't really need a, per- a specific percentage. The important is that the animated part is key to the film. And I agree with this uh, perspective. Uh, in, in this case, uh, there isn't that much. Uh, you, you wouldn't have the doubt that this is an animated documentary. Um, but I think that precisely that use of, of certain uh, sequences connected to historical facts are functional to highlighting that moment. And uh, So I guess, so actually that, that brings exactly the second question then which is if if the film is if the film is saying if if Flea is saying that we've got these historical that live action the live action footage is doing the job of of telling us about history then it's also suggesting that live action is more realistic but then it's also saying that we should take the animated sequences to be as realistic as the live so you get this kind of weird thing where the film is trying to both suggest that animation is as important and as is is as powerful as live action footage whilst at the same time relying on the fact even despite the this is a true story it's still relying on the fact that we subconsciously take well if it's subconsciously we take live action footage to be more truthful because the film wouldn't include it otherwise so it's trying to do both things at once yeah i think it is it, it, it spotlights uh, a certain kind of images and then at the same time it tries to put everything on the same yeah. level 
Okay. Yeah, can, I, can I make a third point? I think I'm, I think we did talk about this a little bit. Well, uh, that, that other film, cut, cut, uh, you yeah. know, um, which is there's also an element where there's this kind of Freudian rhetoric of like working through that is that the, and the animation represents a kind of incomplete worldview of the traumatic subject who is struggling to process reality because of past emotional, um, ne- you know, uh, past hugely negative emotional situations. So it ends with, and the film ends with this sort of live action shot of the city yeah. as, as a kind of statement of, 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 of being cured almost. I know, yeah. So it's, it's not just that it's linking uh, animation with a kind of unreality, which I can sort of cope with because it, it, we've talked about the ways in which there's an mm-hmm. element of truth to that. But it's also li- linking animation with kind of pathology and, and incompleteness. And then live action is a kind of cure when the when the subject is healed of trauma, live action enters back into the world. I think that's a very odd, paradoxical way of framing animation, because in a way, animation is therefore cast as a sickness that that the film must somehow cure itself and its subject of. Which I suspect, as animation scholars, is necessarily a pleasant way of thinking about this no. medium. No, it's totally not. Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> but, but it's there, right? In the kind yeah. of rhetoric of the movie, yeah. Yeah, no. It, it's somehow, yeah, you could you could say that. And I just wanted to add something on why we shouldn't talk about that film. Sure. Um, uh, which, which film? <laughs> <laughs> no, because Scottish <laughs> um. uh, a, a reason. You know, I was saying that a lot of attention has been put on this film, um, but what has done it's. Um, mm, taking away the attention to the fact that the vast majority of contemporary animated documentaries are made by women, uh, which is, uh, I think, a very interesting aspect. And aspect. And um, so I don't think that Volswith Bashir is the most representative due to the fact that uh, it was important for the development of the, the animated documentary as a form, but still it's not the most representative because it was made by um, male... Uh, mm-hmm filmmaker mm. uh, rather than by a, a female filmmaker while the vast majority of them are by independent mostly by independent female uh, filmmakers yeah okay. actually on the issue of animated mockumentary because I was thinking about when you were talking about the contemporary uh, in this trajectory historical trajectory of animated documentary that you posit in the book mm-hmm. and how it ends with this period where you've got these distinctions between um, different kinds of animated documentary after the 80s, 86, I think you said, um, and then move towards subjective narration. And I was thinking about the role of the interview and the interview style that I feel like I've seen a lot of in in animated documentaries. And, and obviously this it kind of structures, it structures this film, but the film also moves, moves between time periods. And, uh, you know, it has, um, I mean, trying to, in order to reconcile the present, he has to reconcile the past. In order to have yes. his future with his partner, he has to, and, and as they move into this house, he has to, he has to, 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 to reconcile the past. And, and so the film is all about catharsis and so forth. So my question about is about kind of the mockumentary because I, I would, you could argue that all animated document, well, maybe you can't, maybe I'm gonna get daggers here. I've already got, yeah, I've already got daggers. <laughs> is it that all, you could argue that all animated documentaries are a form of mockumentary because they're fake. If a mockumentary is fake or a, a, a comedic, maybe the humour is important here, but kind of fakery of a, of a documentary, 
you could argue that animated documentaries, by announcing medium specificity and announcing their animatedness and their fictionality, are a kind of form of mockumentary because they are they are met, they are a, a, about the documentary. They are reconjuring a conversation. The difference between Flea's reconjuring of a conversation through animation versus this is Spinal Tap. They're they're fi- they're equally fictional and equally as real. No, but, not okay, really. No. Because the the difference between a mockumentary and an animated documentary is and an animated mockumentary. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it's that uh, in an animated mockumentary uh, you have uh, a fictional story that is being told using the aesthetics right. of documentary that are mimicked, uh, whereas in an animated documentary. It's being told an actual story, a factual story, uh, using uh, aesthetics that are from fiction film and not from documentary. So they both pertain to the docu-fiction realm, but they are a development, a different development. They go into different directions. So what what distinguishes a mockumentary from an animated documentary is the fact that in one you are talking about real facts in the other one you are talking about fictional events that never happened yeah, yeah. but both of them could conceivably be told through so i'm thinking of the the 2007 surfs up yeah the animated mockumentary yes um and and let's say flea one is a fictional event told through documentary aesthetics and the yes. other one is a series of real events told through different kind but to different kinds of techniques but also through documentary like interviews, both of them have interviews, but the difference is that one's a fictional event and one's a real event, or historically real, but the film presents them equally as fictional because they're both animated. I just, I just interested yes, no, in this it, muddy it, waters, which is, which well, I think is important for a film like Flea that's trying to do lots and lots of different things. Maybe. Isn't this the, you know, the thorny distinction between a fictional story and a and a real story, and that all stories are fictional or all either all stories are fictional yeah. or all stories are real it's like based on you know inspired by true events well so was the wizard of oz like the wizard of oz was inspired by true events yeah. someone mm-hmm. lived a life and conjured a story out of that life um but also it shows um, that the word realism is when we talk about animation and realism is we should talk more you know when i teach on fictional worlds it's more about i'm, I'm more interested in authenticity words like authenticity credibility coherency um fictionality because realism doesn't really tell us anything. No, in fact, it's a category that I somehow rejected, uh, which is the <laughs> you reject reason. reality. I have rejected <laughs> reality. No, um, in trying to identify if animation had a mode of documentary representation of itself, I decided to go beyond realism, and that's why I identified the category of the sober animation and the fabled animation, uh, because realism was the category that used to be uh, applied and animation is not as realistic as a live action documentary image it can never get to that point even you know cgi animation that tries to mimic mimic perfectly the real uh, there is also always that uncanny feeling somehow mm. um, instead if you if we abandon the category of realism and uh, we go in in different direction mm. uh, we can see that uh, yes animation as its mode of documentary representation, which is what I call the sober animation, which is a graphic language that uses a vocabulary taken from um, scientific uh, realms uh, such as cartography or uh, scientific 
illustration, etc. Yeah. While the one that is applied, for instance, in Flea and in all the other animated documentaries is instead animations fictional um, yeah. mode of... Well, I think the fable thing, I've not really made the connection with fantasy, fable, the fable yeah. mode. So you, you have, yes, you've spoken about these two categories. So why does Flea fit the fable model because I understand that the, the, there's kind of sober in terms of that kind of drug that seems to speak to animation's relationship to education and pedagogy and the diagrammatic as you said the, inf mm -hmm. the informational but that's what a fable does Ooh, okay a so this fable is... is a story designed to educate and inform uh, yes. But it does it through an incredibly but different does, rhetoric. Yeah, it does it through a different rhetoric. So why it does is, it through yeah. a fictional somehow <laughs> rhetoric that has a message at the end. Now we're cooking. Yeah. <laughs> so why does Flea fit the... F in, in the way that you've understood and explored this type, Fable yeah. would be a type mm -hmm. rather than a genre of the animated community, um, why does Flea fit the Fable model, which seems to be a popular contemporary way of doing animated documentary. Yeah, what is it about it, Flea that fits this? It's not necessarily contemporary because oh, you okay. can trace also historically the examples, okay. uh, but it's the idea of creating a world through animation in which a character is immersed and he reenacts, he or she reenacts uh, events um, as if uh, he or she was an actual actor uh, reenacting those events. While uh, in the case of the sober animation, you have no actual reenactment so to speak you are not immersed in a world uh, you are invited to keep a certain distance uh, from what you are seeing you cannot participate and have feelings for uh, what is occurring you are just asked to watch what is being presented with a mm. certain uh, distance uh, in this case no you are encouraged to participate mm -hmm. to the visit of Armin um, yep. feel for him and um, <clears throat> a narrative arch yeah. that but, but to me, this is like, you know, um, we're talking about realism. I'll try not to use that word because it's not very helpful to the discussion. But the role of fantasy in all this, like the, 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 the more authentic truth of the role of fantasy is not to obliterate its presence within. But, you know, I, I'm more I think a film like Flea is more honest than a, than an on, you know, than a, than a photo realist, quote unquote, archival documentary, because a film like Flea's attempt to educate on truth is about the role of subjectivity in our perception of life. It's about this person, and, and the animation communicates that very effectively and very well, which is why I find it grating when these films insist on this kind of Freudian definition of fantasy as something that can only bring us ultimately incompleteness and pathology and trauma, and we have to work through the presence of fantasy in our perception of life we have to get rid of the animation and replace it with live action if we are to live a whole, complete, more authentic experience. That the truth of the matter would be that fantasy has a very active role in the way we make sense of life, and pathology lies when we don't acknowledge that rather than when we do. So in a way, I just wish they, I just wish, fa I wish the fantasy was there right till the end, and we didn't have these repeated narratives of trying to get us away from animation to live action because we have to get rid of this corrupting fantasy presence in, in, the, in the lives of the protagonists. Because it, it can only be a statement. It's very declamatory to do, to do that. To, you know, and we've, I'm thinking about autoethnography and, and other films that, that do the animation for a bit and then retreat out of the animation to, to use the live action as the... And in the case of Flea, it's clearly making a point between the journey that the film has gone on and Amin has gone on 
uh, between these, these sketchy, pastely drawings that are really loose and imprecise and impressionistic at the start, and we've achieved live actionness by the end. I think that um, the animated documentary is, I agree with Alex when he was saying that it is somehow sincere. Uh, yeah. In fact, I theorize the animated documentary as the sincerest form mm -hmm. of docudrama. And wit. Uh, <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> because um, it's, uh, it, it, the fact itself that is recreated already puts you as a viewer in that position to know that uh, it, was, it was made up. You don't have to um, think, oh, is this actually what happened? Is this uh, an archival, archival footage or uh, was this recreated? Mm -hmm. uh, you don't have that doubt because you know it was at some point, at some level, recreated, even if it's talking about something that's real. So on that point, I, I think I totally agree with you. So, what I'd love to see is maybe there is one. Maybe you're about to recommend it, Christina. Is the, is the reverse of this? Following the, what I'm saying about like the you know the, the relate animation and fantasy's role in this is that actually, a, to me, a better quote unquote version of this movie is it starts in live action because what the, what what Armin is suffering from is the mistaken belief that the world objectively is the world that's going on in his head. And that's mm -hmm. the source of his trauma. And the way the trauma is released is not to unlock the fantasy, it's to realise the active role that his emotions are playing in the perception of the world himself. So the film shouldn't move from animation to live action, it should move from live action to animation, because the world as we see it is animated by our own perceptions, subjectivity, emotions, mm. fantasies, <coughs> dreams, all that kind of stuff. That's the film I want to see. It's where animation is... is if you're going to do this live-action animation dichotomy, that's, that's the way around it should... It, it, it works for... It, you know, it, it's a more progressive politics because it's, it's acknowledging... It's not bringing us back to objectivity. It's bringing us back to subjectivity as, as, a, mm. as a discourse. Yeah, subjectivity is central to the film, and uh, you are right. It's presenting us... Uh, uh, the world as perceived by Armin, and I think that underlying the fact that he is being interviewed at the beginning um, is functional to this, uh, to underlining the fact that uh, we are not presented fact researched, but we are presented the version of reality as perceived by, by Armin, mm. and how his vision of reality and, for instance, the fact of being gay changed, mm -hmm. uh, because first he had um, a conflictual relationship with that, uh, because he feared that his family would not accept that, mm. and after when his brother brings him to the gay club, uh, he manages to accept that and, and, and make it something em and embrace it in his everyday. And in fact, then he has a proper relationship uh, with somebody that it's out uh, in, uh, in the blue. So it's yeah. So it seems like the decision to go with the live action at the end, yeah, kind of undercut some of the good work that the film was, was doing, or at least, um, and actually it's interesting you mentioned, because I was going to talk about voice, voices, mm -hmm. because so Jonas plays himself, but and Amin plays himself at some points, but not others because of the way that the time works in the film. Other members are credited as anonymous. And so I just wondered what the voice in your work on animated documentary, what role the voice plays in because in animated documentary, because it's, it seems like a big question, but in the case of Flea, to have Jonas as himself almost functions like the live action footage to try and remind you that, no, yeah, it's okay, it's real though. Like to try and keep pulling it back from 
us believing that animation couldn't possibly be this cathartic medium on its own. Yes, absolutely. And in fact, a lot of those that have theorized the animated documentary as a form of documentary has insisted on this point. In the vast majority of animated documentaries, there is a voice of the person that lived those events. So the animation masks mm. the identity, but we hear the actual voice. And that was theorized as something that makes them proper documentaries. Proper, yeah. 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 But uh, instead, uh, animation is an audiovisual medium. It's not just audio. So in the moment in which you combine uh, the visual element uh, with the audio, uh, you go and change also uh, the significance of that audio that is uh, offered. Um, so I think that that's not... Uh, it's functional to remember that we are watching uh, something that's about the real, but I think that it's not enough to say... Oh, then this film can be categorized as a proper documentary. Uh, it's something else. It pertains to a different category that mixes documentary mm. and fiction at different levels. Do animated documentaries tend to use star voices? And the reason I ask you this is uh, a quiz question that I wrote about Chicago 10 um, and Mark Ruffalo. So do animated documentaries tend to use star voices or do they always try and... Uh, presumably that would detract from... The authenticity, in, the properness. In the vast majority of cases, uh, they use the actual voices, yeah. but there are various examples. Another is Persepolis. Uh, Chiara Mastroianni yeah. was um, the voice of Marjan Satrapi uh, in the original version, but for instance, uh, also in uh, the redubbings in, in different nations, uh, act famous actresses were okay. used uh, um, to redub it. So it's... Um, something that may happen uh, there is a relationship also in the classical animated documentary with stars in that case it's uh, animated stars that become protagonists uh, of these works for instance Donald Duck or uh, Mickey Mouse yeah. or you know um, characters that uh, we are familiar with and that are made the protagonists the, the, the everyman around which uh, the, the story revolves mm. in this wasn't it didn't Riz Ahmed and um Oh, what's his name? Jamie Lannister. Um, oh, uh, Nicole um, Costa Waldo. Um, they they dubbed it for the English. Is that right? is the voice? Some of the voiceovers. Yeah, I'm trying to. I was trying to look at some of this. So yeah, some of the voices are are on. Um, yeah, so Riz Ahmed uh, and Nikolai, sorry, Costa Waldo. I've never seen Game of Thrones, so I assume that's what you're referring oh, to. No, no, no. Uh, only a matter of time, mate. So they're not only uh, executive producers in the film; they narrate an English language dub version of the film. Presumably, they narrate it. But don't provide the 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 other, you know other voices. It's it's I don't know. It's just yeah. the soundscape of these things. So, I think you're right that the cartoon is audiovisual. That's an yeah. interesting. Point so, sometimes make. you cannot use use the actual voices because uh, um, maybe the recording that was made of an interview wasn't clean, and so you cannot you know put it in a feature film yeah. that has to have certain standards uh, so in that case maybe you need somebody to dub be it an anonymous uh, dubber or or a star uh, but there is this tendency to try and keep it um, true to the to the real by using the the actual voices mm. there was an interesting uh, blog post by Sam Moore about uh, um, her work uh, um, 
and she was uh, asking her this question because she had a recording that she couldn't use. It was uh, too ru- too ruined, not really understandable, not good quality. And uh, she was questioning um, if she was allowed somehow to e- use dubbers and still consider that an animated documentary. And in the end, she did use the dubbers and it, she was not the only one. So... Um, I like the idea that can I use dubbing to make sure it, you know, to preserve it, whereas the question of whether they can use animation, so that doesn't remove the, that, that doesn't destabilise the reality too much, but it'd be the dubbing. We'll end on Jean-Claude Van Damme and, and the role of music and popular music. And I, you know, mm. in, in the film that can't be named, there's references to, when well, there's Enola Gay, um, the song Enola Gay by, oh, can't remember the name. Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark, OMD. Um, and ABBA, references to ABBA and Bee Gees, I think. And you have a similar kind of culture clash in, in this film. You have AHA. Yeah. Uh, Which has got to be drawing on the, the video of AHA as well, isn't it? The, yeah. Which the is animated. animated. So it's a way of kind of looking at the world through AHA. Um, as we should all do at some yeah, point. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but, the, but also, yeah, the kind of uh, traditions of animated representation. It's the, the film is about animation, Alex. I would say... But the the kind of Jean-Claude Van Damme stuff. So I guess one of the things that this film, like a lot of the animated documentaries that I've seen, of which I've seen a very small amount compared with you, Christina, is a lot of the humour or the light relief of a film that is mm-hmm. mired in in questions of, of rejection and, and healing and reconciliation and how Amin needs to unburden himself from fleeing from himself, but also fleeing from his past and his sexuality and all this sort of stuff. You often, uh, there are light moments of kind of culture clashes and I like Jean-Claude Van Damme, but I think I liked him in a slightly different way than you did. And and, and this seems like a common uh, Persepolis as well, these sorts of culture clashes, which often are moments of light lightness in the film. Yeah, but I think that that's connected also to the typologies of stories that are told because in both cases uh, you have uh, people that go to a country that is very different in terms of culture from their own country and so they experience something different and that is offered uh, in a lighter tone. Um, You were defining Flea as an adult animated documentary but I would say that the vast majority of animated documentaries are destined to adults. Mm. Um, so uh, it's uh, not I was wrong so at the start no yeah <laughs> Yeah, but it's the role of adult. It's this thorny. We've talked about this before. This thorny issue of what adult means. No, and and, and that uh, um, so you need. They they talk <clears throat> about uh, you know a hard subject, and they need that element of uh, um, of spark. Yeah. Uh, with and, and and this cultural difference is a way of doing it. In other cases, you have the gag made by a character or something like that. Um, and, and they have always had a tradition of having some lighter elements, even those that were more didactic, uh, add these elements uh, here and there to make it, you know, less boring for, for the viewers, yeah. so to say. Yeah, yeah. This is why I see the gay club sequence, because it comes immediately after. I mean, thinking that he's going to be rejected by his family. I'm not quite sure knowing how his, his brother and sister is going to react to his father. So I just, yeah. I just thought it was interesting. And, and to sort of, you know, give the film some praise because I'm yeah. a bit grumpy about it. It's an, incredibly, <laughs> it's an incredibly empathetic film. Like, it uses the animation very well to tell a very specific story in a way that you're very quickly able to access this... Well, not access, but but appreciate and and understand this person's emotional state. You know, it's it's 
it's as you say it's a very sort of transnational story about two countries that I've never visited or know very much about mm. um, it's you know it's a white as you say it's one story to tell a wider global problem about migration and, and yeah. asylum um, and and the, and the lack of compassion that surrounds that rhetoric um, across the world you know is worth offering these kind of counter voices so I think I will go back to what I said at the start which is like if this is if this does feel a bit generic or a bit using the tropes there's not always anything that wrong with that if it's doing the genres are very popular I've heard yeah. you know yeah. <laughs> um, well I guess we should yeah, yeah. I mean I, I don't have anything much to much else to say I mean I think the uh, the film does some yeah really interesting things with kind of temporality and um, <clears throat> we haven't really uh, talked about his I guess his relationships and his uh, and, the, and the move between kind of past and present but um, yeah I mean I think that probably something that is interesting about this film is also how it resonates with what is happening in uh, reality right now. Sure. Uh, there is that yeah. interesting sequence in which the McDonald in Russia is opening uh, that speaks very much to the fact that this year the McDonald's in Russia Cla were closed. Yeah. Uh, so I think that that's an yeah. element that makes this uh, film very actual and that is one of the reasons probably um, because it had this much success even though uh, it's not innovative uh, on a formal level. So it touches certain uh, topics that are uh, very much contemporary and that speak to the um, contemporary But, but that's really interesting in relation to the live action footage because it kind of reminds us that these moments of tragedy and these defining notes of history unfortunately repeat themselves. Yeah. That there is this really... The things that are happening in the live actionness, Alex is disagreeing. Well, the, wouldn't it do that in animation? Yes, yes, it, yes, it would. But I think I the film I don't, is. I don't assume that of the viewer that they weren't able to work out that these animated pictorials are have real life references. I don't. Yes, I no, don't need to be reminded of an archival footage of of the yeah. Iranian of. of you don't need to be reminded of our co of the Afghan 1980s war to know that it existed. And if no. you didn't know it existed, that wouldn't help remind me. But I think the film, I think the film thinks that of the. Yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. I, 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 unless it's saying, well, the 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 uh, what was what was relegated to live. Like we could use this film. There could be a film in 20 years' time that uses footage from Flea as its as its live. So it doesn't have to. That that could if footage from Flea could be used as authenticating in the way that Flea le leans on live action. So I don't know whether it's again this compromised position between it is both trying to have these things on the same level. Live action is as fictional as animation and vice versa, and they're all as real as each other. But also quite clearly ascribing values to both of those both of those things. But I guess the the way that time works in the film and 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 even you know, Walter Bashir, this sort of <laughs> this sort of. R the repetition because actually what both of those films are about are also conflicts between generations as well and not knowing how your elders will react or trying yeah. to find oneself as a child and also, also Persepolis is uh, a film about which is much uh, better than Bashir. because it was made by women <laughs> yes and much better than Flea and much better well much better than Walter Bashir oh yeah We've gone there. On we'll, that rank, we'll rank for what yeah, that that seems a not productive. Uh, well, we should we should definitely do Persepolis at some point. We've done it, Chris. Have we? We've done an episode on Persepolis. Yeah, I was wondering <laughs> if you hadn't worked that out. Have we? This is absolutely staying in. We have done an episode on Persepolis. It's in the archive, ladies and gentlemen. You can access it. It exists. Um, it's just me right. and you. We did it over COVID, so we we're both uh, losing our minds. Okay, but fair we enough. definitely did it. Well, yeah, I'm yeah, going yeah. to now. That is the first time live on air. He's forgotten an episode, and I haven't. Yeah. I am delighted. And I'm going um, to flee. And yeah, and, and Chris is going to flee. 
Christina, to get away from our squabbles, um, the book is out. It's available to purchase, is it? Um, remind us what yeah. it's called and, and, uh, what it does. Can, and what it does and where people can get it. It's called The Classical Animated Documentary in Its Contemporary Evolution. And uh, you can get it uh, online on Bloomsbury's website or right. in libraries. <laughs> we'll hyperlink to it, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it talks about uh, the evolution of the animated documentary as a form, uh, focusing especially on its uh, origins and on the development of the classical era, which has been key uh, also for um, the development of what today is uh, the, the animated documentary. Great, excellent, and and people should seek it out and, and access it because it's uh, an important addition to, to an ongoing conversation about the role of, of animation, documentary, the role of all, all the things we've been chatting about and, and a lot more um, besides. So thank you so much for coming on and sharing uh, your insights on Flea with us. Thanks for you for inviting me. Uh, we have been Fantasy Animation. Uh, you can find us at fantasy-animation.org. Do you have anything to say about the animated documentary? Let us know, um, and, we'll, and we'll, we might publish a blog post on it. Uh, there's a contact us um, point on the uh, website, uh, and all the details are there. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, fananimresearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M, research. And it's the same with an at gmail.com, so fananimresearch at gmail.com if you have any suggestions for a footnote episode yeah. that you would like us to cover. But um, not Persepolis, because apparently we've done that we've done Persepolis we're not going to do that again um, don't rework past trauma yeah because <laughs> it's found the page now yeah, it's yeah. definitely staying in now now you've got a repeated notion to it I'm I not cutting two bits out sure, so yeah. you're definitely staying episode in. 52 it's, a, good, it's a corker everyone really memorable yeah. um, yes you can find us there please do take part in the conversation subscribe like review all the fun stuff that keeps us going and keeps the lights on and keeps us visible otherwise we'll see you next time bye Thank you.